The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. And every time something was brought up, you know, we would show him this picture, his face would be as flat as can be, but his physiological responses, his arousal responses were really strong every time he saw one of these emotional stimuli. And and it was amazing because just looking at his face, there was nothing there. And he doesn't think anything is there. You know, I would ask him, what would you do if your wife divorced you? And he said as flat as he, you know, just straight face as he could possibly be, well, she's got to do what she has to do. But yet this massive spike. So you can tell he had this emotional response. And so it made me think like these people who have this blunted affect, I think that it's just unlocking something. There's something there that we have to get through. We have, it's a barrier that we have to get through and help them learn there's a threshold. And it's this threshold has become so high in some of these individuals that we've got to lower this threshold and their ability to detect when something's going on and kind of unlock some of these physiological responses. And so that's what led me to kind of develop the intervention that we have for teaching people with brain injury to gain insight into their emotions, detect these physiological responses, connect physiological responses with an emotional label and what they're feeling, and then being able to communicate and express those things. And so this neuroplasticity, I believe that it's there. I believe that as long as these, you know, these connections aren't fully and completely disrupted, you can, you know, you can revive some of these and strengthen these connections. What happens is when when people first have a brain injury, there's often so many things that they need help with, right? And so you're focusing on, let's get them back to eating, let's get them back to walking, let's get them the skills they need to go back to work or to their life. And so this whole emotion, empathy, social cognition side of things kind of gets forgotten about, or in some cases, isn't recognized as a problem because when you're in a hospital or rehab situation, everything's structured and everything's happening with a specific purpose or reason. So sometimes those interactional problems don't show up, but also people are um, too busy focused on other things. So then these people go home and they no longer have this regular therapy and everyone thinks they're ready to go. You know, they've got the skills they need. They should be fairly successful and it all falls to pieces. And that's because if you're not um, responding or interacting emotionally and using social communication the way people expect, then that creates huge problems.
In this and the next episode, we talk to two experts in alexithymia after brain injury. Doctors Don Newman and Barbara Zupan will review alexithymia, which is an inability to recognize emotions from vocal, facial, and body movement cues. Alexithymia after brain injury can cause a lot of problems as the survivor tries to understand the people around them. It also tends to flatten the expression of emotion by the survivor, making it hard for others to read the feelings and emotions of the survivor. On top of that, the survivor finds it difficult to feel and understand their own emotions. The survivor has a hard time interpreting internal cues, their own cues of fear or anger or sadness or happiness. So they may have a heartbeat that's gone up or a clenched fist or sweaty palms, but they either do not attend to the cues or they don't know what the cues mean. So a lot of the retraining of understanding the cues involve understanding the cues first in themselves. Don and Barbara will will help us understand how integral understanding emotions are to everyday interactions. They'll also confirm that losing this skill after brain injury can make navigating human interactions very difficult. Don Newman, PhD, FACRM, is an associate professor at Indiana University School of Medicine in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation and the research director at the Rehabilitation Hospital of Indiana. She has a PhD in rehabilitation science from SUNY Buffalo, New York, and her MA in psychology from Rutgers, New Jersey. Her research aims to advance the understanding and treatment of social cognition and emotion dysregulation deficits after traumatic brain injury. She serves on the Journal of Head Trauma Rehabilitation editorial review board and has received several recognitions including the acrm deborah wilkerson award the acrm mitchell rosenthal award and the joshua Cantor scholar award Dr. Barbara Zupin, PhD, is an associate professor in speech pathology at Central Queensland University in Queensland, Australia. She has a PhD in communication disorders and sciences from the State University of New York in Buffalo. Her research focuses on perception and integration of facial and vocal cues of emotion and social cognition following traumatic brain injury. She is committed to supervising student research in various areas and serves on the committee for the Australasian Society for the Study of Brain Impairment as the Continuing Education Officer. And as you'll hear right up front, she lives in beautiful Yapoon, Queensland, Australia, which is on the West Coast. Sounds wonderful. Okay, good. And and all I want to do is ask you about Yapoon. Is that where you live? Yapoon, yes. Yapoon? And yes. The, and the guitars behind you. <laughs> that, I, I'm not sure our audience would really, because they wouldn't be able to see it, and they would be like, Yapoon, what's that? Yeah, they'd be like, what is Yapoon? Yeah, Yapoon is a gorgeous place to live. Um, I might, in between, be muting the mic to turn the air cut on, because I had to close the windows for noise with all oh. the birds outside. Um, but it's we're getting close to summer here so it's warm <laughs> oh that's right yeah um and and you're right on the uh which we'll call it east coast of australia or yes wait, am i getting that right okay no you're correct i'm about a seven hour drive north of brisbane and and so between brisbane and Cairns, um those would be the the cities people know so is it like a beach town it is it's it's a oh. small little beach town um we're about a 10 minute walk from the beach and pretty much, I think there's 10 different beaches within a couple kilometers of us. Nice. <laughs> Everywhere, every corner you turn, there's another beach. It's it's pretty amazing. I'm sorry it's, to hear that. It must be yeah. terrible. <laughs> it's awful. Yeah. yeah, it's funny. You go to the beach here, and if there's 10 people on it, you're like, gosh, the beach is busy today. <laughs> really? Yeah, because there's just, there's so many beaches and we're a tiny little community that you could go to any beach and not see a soul for the whole day. Um, plus, I think people who grow up here just take it for granted, probably. Yeah, we're yeah. much more likely to, you know, take every moment we can to be next to the sea. But <laughs> Yeah. How did you end up in Australia? It was fairly random. I was having a bad day at work and thought it must be speech pathology professor job somewhere. And I just Googled Australia for fun and this job popped up and I looked it up. I'm like, gosh, that looks like a beautiful place to live. And I just randomly on a whim applied and then they offered me the job. So then my husband and I were like, well, I guess we have to talk about this. <laughs> no, we don't. Yeah, yeah right. he, he was all in. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, I guess right now too, in you know, this area of Australia, we've had zero COVID. Mm-hmm. So other than the initial month or two where there were kind of lockdowns countrywide, we've gone about life totally normally for the 18 months. Yeah, you, <laughs> you're been... just showing off now, aren't you? I know, but we can't leave our state and we can't leave our country. So, th- you know, there's that, but. <laughs> and that's, that's a bad a thing. thing. That's a bad well, thing. No. Not necessarily. Um, you know, it would be nice to travel, I suppose, but I'm quite happy. Hey, Don. Hey, I was having Hi. trouble getting in. It was copying the link strange. So I'm sorry I'm a couple minutes late. Should we get started? Because sure. this is gold right here. It, really, <laughs> it is. And, and sometimes this gold ends up, it ends up on the podcast. <laughs> I think with it being as late as it is here and as early as it is for Barb, you're going to get some silly, foolish some stuff, silly possibly. Stuff. Maybe we should start drinking. <laughs> I'll have my word finding problems, you know. <laughs> well, that'll make me feel a little bit better. <laughs> okay. Um, welcome, Dr. Don Newman and Dr. Barbara Zupan to our humble little Noggins and Neurons podcast. Thanks for spending your Friday evening with us, Don, and for Barbara in Australia. Thanks for spending your Saturday morning with us. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Our pleasure. My first question is, I, I got into this all backwards. I read your article, and actually the, just the- um, The abstract? I didn't pay for it. The abstract. Thank you. <laughs> Word finding problems. Uh, I put that in your head. Empathic responses to effective film clips following brain injury and in the association with emotion recognition accuracy. And uh, and then I saw that uh, Barbara was from Australia, and I thought she was Australian, and Don was from in that far off land of Indiana in the United States. And I was like, they have this international, um, you know, very niche kind of focus. How did they find each other? And then I saw an interview with Dawn online, and she was talking about like this international cabal of researchers that focus on emotion recognition in people with brain injury. And I was like, wow, who are these people? And are they jetting across you know, the world to get to each other? And then uh, we realized that uh, Barbara went to school in Buffalo, as did Dawn. And I'm thinking, did you meet each other there? We did. Um, yeah, I went. I actually, Dawn's supervisor for her PhD um, was someone who knew my family and I had never met him. So I just went to his office to introduce myself. And Dawn happened to be um, sitting in his office and we got talking and they asked me to join the team. So it was serendipitous, I guess. Well, first of all, good sleuthing. Okay. So really good sleuthing. I like how you, you followed kind of the thread backwards there. So that's very impressive. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was absolutely, it was so bizarre that I happened to be there with my advisor at the University of Buffalo. We were sitting there and we're working on my dissertation project, but also trying to get this dissertation project, which was looking at emotion, training emotion perception in people with brain injury and talking about um, taking the pilot data from the dissertation and applying for a federal grant. And we're sitting there and we're talking about this federal grant. And we're talking about how emotion perception and labeling and being able to describe the emotion that you're seeing in other people and how there's kind of a, a speech component to it. And it was like, all of a sudden, there's a knock on the door. And it turns out it's a speech pathologist. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay, I want a million dollars, please. <laughs> and there's Barb saying, hey, you know, <laughs> you happen to be my parents' neighbor. And, you know, they told me to come visit you guys. So I'm here. And we got to talking. And I think within like that, that visit, it's like, hey, do you want to be on a grant <laughs> with us? It was by the time I left that visit, I was I went home to do some research to feel like I was adding something useful to the grant since you were pulling me in. And then there's other people involved in this in this group as well. How how big is the circle and are they all are you always kind of together in your research? Back when we all first started, it was Don and I and um, Barry Willer, who was Don's advisor. And then he was doing some training, basically training to clinicians in Australia. And he would do workshops across Australia and New Zealand. And during that process, he met Duncan Babbage. And so Duncan was also interested in the area and he was a psychologist. So added yet another background to the team. So, you know, said to 
Duncan, hey, I want you to meet Barbara and Dawn and kind of pulled Duncan into the team. So we worked together, all of us for about 10 years. Alexithymia, what is it? And please, I'm hoping you help me because I'm obsessed with a neuroplastic model of everything with regard to brain injury. Is there a way to have a neuroplastic model that would, through maybe repetitive practice, and I know you've done work in this area, help people that don't recognize emotions in other people to recognize emotions in other people? So can you give us just the scientific background in layman's terms? That'll be easy peasy. Alexithymia is probably like my favorite. Well, it's something I'm really passionate about. And I, I've come, I've actually back, like worked myself backwards into this whole area of alexithymia. And it literally means, um, translates into no words for emotions and wound up getting finding it because um, from the work that we've been doing in affect recognition and being able to recognize other people's emotions. So from the work that we've done with being able to recognize other people's emotions and trying to understand what are the ways in which we recognize other people's emotions, there's different ways in which we can do this. And one of those ways is through being able to identify those emotions in ourselves. As I started to look into that ability to kind of identify what we are feeling ourselves, this is how I came across the literature in alexithymia. So when you think about alexithymia beyond kind of that definition, it's typically characterized by people who have problems recognizing when they're having an emotional response. They may behaviorally be having an emotional response, but they don't necessarily realize that they're having an emotional response. They may not sense or be acknowledge that emotional experience, even though it's coming out in their behaviors, or they may realize that they're having an emotional response, but they're not able to label or describe what it is they're feeling. So they might say, hey, I'm, I'm not feeling good right now, or I'm feeling kind of unpleasant or bad. But beyond that, so they could speak maybe in some vague terms, um, but they won't be able to kind of make those discrete distinctions about what it is that they're feeling and say, okay, I'm feeling sad versus angry versus fearful. So they may kind of be flooded with kind of different um this, an emotional experience, but not be able to make distinctions between one emotion versus another. I think that description is really good because it highlights the fact that it's not that they don't experience or feel emotion. And I think that's often um, a misinterpretation that people have that, that alexithymia means there's just no emotion there and it's there. They just can't interpret or describe or identify what, what that is that's going on for them. So I thought that was really um, good description. It's an inability to recognize the emotion in yourself. And then that, or, or I don't know which is the chicken and the egg, but that makes it harder to recognize the same emotions in others. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, that, that idea that you need to be able to experience it yourself to know what that feels like and what it should look like. Because if you've never experienced the emotion, if you've never experienced sadness, why do you think that you'd be able to know what that looks like in somebody else necessarily? Um, or even thinking about all of the cues that go into us being able to understand or recognize emotions in other people, like thinking about context that's likely to lead to that. We can, we tend to infer those things because it, it's more likely we've had those same experiences. But they've, they've had a brain injury. They certainly understand what sadness is in themselves prior to the brain injury, but that doesn't translate to post-traumatic brain injury? One of the things is I think it depends on the age at which you were injured. And Barb could probably speak way more eloquently than I can about that and the age of injury and the development of emotions. So that was part of her dissertation. But I also think that it has to do with factors are not localized in the brain for sure, right? And emotions are very complex and there's these networks that are working together, but areas of the brain that are more disrupted than others can disrupt that process of how these parts of the brain are kind of talking and communicating with one another and being able to make these connections about what they feel and what other people are feeling, if that makes sense. So I, I think it depends on the injury. Because with traumatic brain injury, the injury tends to be so widespread and diffuse. There's so many areas that are impacted. So even if they experienced that before, now the damage has basically destroyed that recognition of what those physiological responses mean. 
Um, and so they can't recall from their past experience, the brain is disrupting those pathways that are saying, well, if you feel this weight on your chest and you have these physiological responses, the brain no longer tells you how to interpret those those experiences. Or if you see it in somebody else, you know, I think ultimately they can learn that, oh, if I see tears, I know that probably means they're sad, but they don't actually recognize that it's sad. So their responses aren't always um, appropriate because they're just, yeah, I know they're sad, but then their response isn't what you would expect if you emotionally connected that I know what it feels like to be sad. So I feel for this person who's sad. So I know I should offer support or offer a hug. So there's so many parts of the brain that are contributing to that exchange and that interaction. So it's not just what's going on in the person, but recognizing the other and pulling all of that together. And that's where it becomes problematic. There's another piece of this too. I like the way Barb had said, being able to piece together that sensation, our cues in the body with an emotional experience. But then we also see often after a brain injury, people have that blunted affect or that flat affect. And people, I don't know if you guys have heard, or I, I mean, I hear it quite frequently. A lot of times people will say, well, I, I can't feel, I don't feel anymore. Since my since my injury, I don't feel anything, nothing. You know, I go to a funeral or I know something happens and somebody dies and I know I'm supposed to have this emotional experience and I, I just don't, it's not there. And so that is another really interesting thing. I need to tell you a fun story of where a lot of this started for me in terms of the intervention for this many, many years ago now. It was probably like 2010 or 2012. I get a phone call from one of our neuropsychologists at the Rehabilitation Hospital of Indiana, Dr. Lance Trexler, who is quite renowned in the field of, of traumatic brain injury. And he calls me and he says, after a brain injury, can you teach somebody how to feel again, how to have emotions again. He tells me that he has a patient in his office who had a stroke. And this guy, he had he had a stroke prior to his stroke, very affectionate guy. And he's married and he has children and he and his wife are there and they're distraught because he doesn't feel anything anymore. He is, according to him, he has no emotions. You know, I had said to him, I said, why do you think he has no emotions? And Dr. Trexler is like, well, because he says he doesn't. And his wife confirms this. And it's so distressing to the family that the wife went out of her way to basically fool him into thinking something was happening just to elicit an emotional response. So for example, they are at, I think the state fair or something like that. And she orchestrated the situation to make it look like their child went missing to see if he would respond emotionally. What? That's not evil, but it's interesting. Not joking. Because she was so, I mean, it's interesting because after a brain injury, you we hear a lot about how bad it could be if somebody has anger and aggression and they have these disruptive emotional problems, right? And that's hugely problematic. But to some degree, I almost feel like a lack of an emotional response is even worse, right? When you are expecting somebody to be affectionate and now you have nothing, you have zilch. That is your way to have this emotional connection with people. She does this and he, you know, he's like, okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll find her. We'll find her, you know, there like, so he was, cons he had a reaction, but it wasn't an emotional. It was a very logical cognitive reaction. You know, I basically said, you know, I'm, I'm kind of curious because to see what's going on there, because I'm not convinced he has no emotions because how do we know that it's not a disruption between there being something internal that's not escaping externally and he's not detected. And so we wound up getting some equipment to measure his physiological responses and doing an interview with him. And we had his wife send him in with emotional pictures. So pictures from their wedding day, pictures of his children being born, a piece of cloth with um, her perfume sprayed on it, the wife's perfume sprayed on it. I basically interviewed him and we had him hooked up to this equipment to measure his arousal every time I would, sh you know, mention or show some emotional stimulus. And every time something was brought up, you know, we would show him this picture, his face would be as 
flat as can be, but his physiological responses, arousal responses were really strong every time he saw one of these emotional stimuli. And, and it was amazing because just looking at his face, there was nothing there. And he doesn't think anything is there. You know, I would ask him, what would you do if your wife divorced you? And he said as flat as he, you know, just straight face as he could possibly be. Well, she's got to do what she has to do. But yet this massive spike. So you can tell he had this emotional response. And so it made me think like these people who have this blunted affect, I think that it's just unlocking something. There's something there that we have to get through. We have, it's a barrier that we have to get through and help them learn. There's a threshold and it's this threshold has become so high in some of these individuals that we've got to lower this threshold and their ability to detect when something's going on. And kind of unlock some of these physiological responses. And so that's what led me to kind of develop the intervention that we have for teaching people with brain injury to gain insight into their emotions, detect these physiological responses, connect physiological responses with an emotional label and what they're feeling, and then being able to communicate and express those things. And this neuroplasticity, I believe that it's there. I believe that as long as these, you know, these connections aren't fully and completely disrupt it, you can, you know, you can revive some of these and strengthen these connections. I know the intervention is where I want to go to. Are these studies ever done with fMRI? We have not done the intervention study with MRI, whether it, not with alexithymia, not with our facial affect recognition intervention. We have not done that yet. And I, I respect neuroimaging. Um, oh, boy. Here we go. No, I totally respect neuroimaging and it has its time and its place for me. And I don't, Barbara, I'd be curious your, your thoughts on it. But my thought is if we're doing an intervention and it's changing behavior and function and outcome, do I need to see what's going on in the brain necessarily? I feel like if we can learn from neuroimaging mechanisms that are kind of contributing to it and what we should be focusing on more versus less to understand, like when you could think that there's multiple pathways in terms of what's contributing to the problem and where we should be focusing more, I think that's helpful. But if we're doing an intervention that's changing behavior and improving outcome, I think that's fantastic. I think my thoughts would be similar to what Don just said, that I think fMRI can give us a lot of good information from a pure science perspective in terms of exactly which pathways or which parts of the brain are contributing to these processes, which can you know, allow for more targeted treatment and, and all of those things. But to me, when we look at this space of alexithymia and emotion recognition and empathy, we're talking about social communication. And so when you do an fMRI study, you're using very um, specific stimuli in a very limited scenario with a single person. Um, and so I, it doesn't actually capture that interactional, functional, everyday sort of thing that goes on with communication. And I think that even in, in our behavioral kinds of treatments, there's still this tendency to treat one piece of that puzzle. And some of that, again, from a science perspective, you need to pull out that piece to see, well, is this treatment working or not versus let's do the big picture thing and stuff improves and we don't know what made it improve. So I understand why it's happening. But in everyday life, all of those things have to work together. And, and I think we need to do a better job of putting all of those pieces together. So that, that's how I see the fMRI side of things. Well, you, you were measuring physiological responses and fMRI measures a physiological response. It's just, I, it would be interesting to see. Do you, do you, I don't want to harp on it anymore, but do you know of anybody doing that work either in this population or maybe in autistic folks? I've actually done neuroimaging. I've done fMRI, but just not not pre-post of a treatment. Um, so we've done fMRI in people with brain injury um, and examined its relationship with emotion perception deficits to try to understand what what was driving those deficits. So we thought if 
there were certain areas of the brain that were reacting differently and people who were impaired that would give us some more direction as to what the problem was. But I never did a study where we looked at the changes after an intervention. So I'm not familiar with anybody that's looked at pre-post changes specifically in this. If there's anybody that's done it, I would not be surprised if it's folks at Kessler in New Jersey. Yeah, I know where Kessler is. I worked there. Hey, um, so did I? Did no way. Actually, I saw that somewhere on your bio somewhere. West Orange. It was East Orange. So I worked there 1998 in the cognitive remediation program. That East Orange location doesn't exist anymore. I know. Yeah. Were you so there? Were, were you there when Dudley Moore was there? Who's that? No, he's an actor. Think. Famous actor was a, at East Orange. Oh, oh, I may have been. I do know that we treated well because I didn't work clinically. Well, no, I did work clinically then, but they would they limited the number of people. I know we had a famous person there when I was there, and they they limited who worked with this person and who yeah. knew who the person was. So I did not know, but my guess is that's probably who it was at the time. Kessler, look at Kessler. Yeah. 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 And I know that world. there are researchers there in, in West Orange. I know that they do some a lot of social cognition stuff. I know that they do fMRI stuff. So I don't know if they've done any pre-post examination. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. One other question about this. What were you measuring? Was it heart rate? Was it blood pressure? What? What physiological responses were with this doing? one person? And this was like a pure case study. Like we literally, we were measuring oh, um, um, galvanic skin response. So systemic arousal. So when we have, um, you know, we get exposed to an emotional response. It's that kind of that arousal that that you're you're measuring. It's kind of a, a sweat response in your yeah. skin that we were looking at. Yes, you guess. <laughs> Deb, you have a question, Deb? I just want to maybe link something to to a term. So it sounds like you're talking about interoception. Uh, I talk about that all the time of that insight into your acknowledgement of what's going on physiologically. And I've wanted to look at this for a while now. I, I just haven't done some of this, but like that interoceptive awareness. So um, thinking about your heart rate, right? And how cued into your heart rate or how cued into your, your tent, your body tension and your, you know, your, your, your body temperature are you? Um, and th- those that's really key because those are all the indicators in our body that are telling us that there's a response, an emotional response happening. And the sooner we can detect the onset of those things, we can say, hey, something's happening. And then you need to be able to tie that those sensations and those cues with with what it what it is that you're actually feeling. Would biofeedback help with that? Is it tried? Has it used? There, to my knowledge, um, there's a lot of stuff on um, heart rate variability and biofeedback with that and being used to help with emotion regulation. So, and I've looked at this a little bit with in relationship to alexithymia and, and that interoceptive awareness. Um, it's interesting because my understanding is that I feel like the findings are really mixed. So some people with alexithymia are really, really, really bad at it. And then some people are really good at it. So sometimes people with alexithymia acknowledge those sensations. And what's, so they may be hypersensitive to it to some degree. And what's interesting so this is going to take us a little off that people with alexithymia also have a lot of issues with pain. Um, this is not something that's been examined yet fully in brain injury. We, we actually have a grant. We're looking at it right now. But outside of brain injury, there is a correlation with this. And the idea is that people may be hypersensitive to those sensations, but they're not linking it with an emotion. They're linking it with discomfort and aka pain. But going back to that question of kind of heart rate variability, like so um, the more variability there is, the better you should be at responding to stressors and better at emotion regulation. So biofeedback should assist with that. And I do know that biofeedback, I think that there's some research. I don't know the level of evidence behind the biofeedback and, and contributing to emotion dysregulation. I don't believe anybody's looked at the biofeedback feedback in alexithymia or emotion perception with people with traumatic brain injuries per se. It's an, it's a great question. It's one I'm really interested in. I just, I don't have that expertise with the, the tools very much for it. Thank you. Absolutely. Interesting questions. We are starting 
I don't know if this is relevant or not, but my PhD student is doing a project right now where we're looking at heart rate variability and the connection to um, emotion recognition and various social cognition skills. So we're essentially doing an exercise protocol. And so testing people beforehand and having them wear accelerometers and things and checking heart rate and then getting them doing exercise and then doing post-testing after this period of exercise, which hopefully will increase heart rate variability for them, which hopefully we'll find a, that there's improvements in social cognition. And then we can start to look at, you know, is, is there anything with heart rate connected? There has been a study done that looked at heart rate variability and emotion recognition, but not with people with brain injuries. So, but we're just starting that project. So it'll be a while before we have any real data. So we'll see, we'll see what happens. We're quite excited about it because we're looking at sort of that bigger picture concept of, you know, let's do some exercise and physical activity and increase increase that and see if there's um, improvements in sleep, improvements in cognition, um, improvements in social cognition, because all of those things are connected. Uh, And now we're, you know, the way we've designed the project, we can actually look at all of those things at the same time. Wow. Exercise. Exercise helps everything. Yeah. I'm going to go get on my row machine right now. We should do Can this you wait until exercising. after the interview? <laughs> that probably would be best. Come on, man. Good, good point. <laughs> so I wonder, is now a good time to get into the interventions, especially for people that are struggling with this or caregivers of people, like without going to the state fair and pretending that you've lost your daughter. Is there stuff that you can do that's maybe a little bit more reasonable? I think, um, you know, there's a lot of research that talks about communication partner training. And so there are treatments that are specifically designed for the partners. And so it teaches them how to um, essentially give cues about when the person should respond or how the person should respond or being more obvious about what you're feeling so they know to give a response, but to do it in a way that's not patronizing or because sometimes what happens is, you know, you can imagine the dynamic where the partner is constantly correcting or constantly cueing, and then it starts to create a different kind of tension and problem in the relationship. So there, there are some really nice programs about that. And it just walks you through and they, they do them online as well now, which is, which is beautiful given current times. Um, but it does really give people the um, tools, I guess, to know how to communicate and what to expect. So like Don was saying, if, if someone's not responding to you, that's almost worse than that aggressive response because you don't understand why they're not responding. So you've got this person that used to be emotionally connected and now they're not. And so you start to think, well, am I doing something wrong? Um, you know, do they not like me anymore? Like there's, you know, all of those sort of personal issues that we all experience when you th- think somebody isn't reacting the way you expect. And then you heighten that by it being someone you're quite close to. So I think these kinds of group trainings and partner trainings are are a key component to to treatment. Is this a website and is it something that's free? And can you give us the link? (laughs) I will look it up right now for you. Um, I can do. It's it's run out of the University of Sydney here. And I I know initially they had the one that was face-to-face and that was all tested and done. And then they were trialing the online. Are you talking about Sky McDonald's stuff? No, I'm talking about Leanne Tower and Rachel Reddick's. Um, I'm fairly sure they're through it, Peter. So I'll look it up and, and send you the link. And there's also one that's a free, there is a free just... Um, it's like a workshop. It's not very long. I think it's an hour, 90 minutes that just sort of talks about communicating with people with brain injury that I think is also really nice. So I can send through those links. Any kind of resources that you guys have, we put in the show notes and then people can click on oh, them cool. and have fun. Cool. Like I said, it's not my work, but I'm happy to um, share it on behalf of Leanne and Rachel because I think it's really good work. Yeah. And I would, and then, uh, if, yeah, and sharing external work too, I would um, also point to the work that's been done at a Craig hospital in Colorado. I don't know if you've ever connected with those folks um, with Lenny Holly and oh gosh, I'm going to blank on her name right now. Jody, Jody, um, Jody Newman, my last name um, spelled differently. So Jody, thank you, Jenny, Jody Newman and Lenny Holly. Um, 
and other researchers at Craig Hospital, they created a um, social competency intervention. It's a group therapy intervention, and it's quite holistic. And so they had a good group therapy as well uh, and finding so we can share that too. Um, but maybe we should talk about some of our own stuff too, Barb. <laughs> yeah, do. Like, so when we got started with our talk tonight, we were talking about, about how Barb and I met. And we were, at the time, we were creating an intervention for teaching people with brain injury to recognize other people's emotions, which was part of my dissertation. And then the pilot data evolved into the, this larger study. Um, and so, you know, it was really, I, I don't know, I kind of think it's, it's still, it's kind of fascinating because what we had created was essentially through facial expressions, we would show the intervention, we would show them pictures of faces, and we would go through teaching them what to look at, what features in the face are important, what they should be paying attention to, and how to link those features with an emotional response. So, hey, what's going on with the eyebrows here? You know, oh, look, they're scrunched. And when eyebrows are scrunched like that, what is that associated with? And kind of helping them associate when it's scrunched in this way, it's often associated with anger. When they're raised in this way, it's often associated with fear. Um, So we would teach them what to pay attention to and how to link them with the emotions. But then going back to earlier, it's not just recognizing and identifying a particular feature. There's more to recognizing how other people are feeling. That is through being able to recognize our emotions within ourselves. So we spent a lot of time in the intervention, we would have them mimic facial expressions. And we did this with this intent of if you're making that facial expression, that it would potentially help to elicit that emotional response, you would know what it feels like. And we would then ask them also to recall a time in their life where they also felt that emotion and have them try to recreate that moment and that experience and what it would feel like and what is that physiological state and through through that make a connection with themselves so that they would better be able to recognize and identify that in somebody else and then we at the at the end of the intervention we would sort of do this advanced processing of like kind of this conceptual um helping them sorry go ahead barb just say that at the end of it we would essentially have a conversation so we'd take that that little scenario situation that they described to us when we were having them try to mimic the emotion and we talk through all of you know how that should feel and but we would unpack it further and ask additional questions like what led you to feel that way and you know essentially getting at, was it the appropriate response? How did the person respond to your response so that they were starting to connect all of those pieces? And if there was no response, why, why did you think that? So it was really just unpacking and, and um, discussing that entire scenario, but linking it back to the, the specific emotion that they said they had. So, you know, how do you think your face looked? Like if you said you felt sad, do you think you showed you felt sad? And why do you think that? And, you know, all of those um, kinds of questions to sort of help them think through it. Yeah. And I mean, essentially, too, it was really helping them to create all of these associations. So putting putting the whole thing together, essentially, it was really putting everything together while also unpacking it. But, uh, you know, essentially saying, okay, here's this, this emotion. And this emotion was linked. What was the context? What were the facial features? What was the behavioral response? What was the other person's response? And so we really, we put it all together. So they would have kind of this deeper sort of conceptual understanding uh, of what it meant. It does Um, this turn into a, a treatment option that clinicians can use or caregivers can use. And if it was a, a clinical treatment option, is it speech therapists that are in the best position to do it? I'm so glad you asked that, Peter, because I raise this all the time. I think what happens is when when people first have a brain injury, there's often so many things that they need help with, right? And so you're focusing on, let's get them back to eating, let's get them back to walking, let's get them the skills they need to go back to work or to their life. And so this whole emotion, empathy, social cognition, side of things kind of gets forgotten about, or in some cases, isn't recognized as a problem. Because when you're in a hospital or rehab situation, 
everything's structured and everything's happening with a specific purpose or reason. So sometimes those interactional problems don't show up, but also people are um, too busy focused on other things. So then these people go home and they no longer have this regular therapy and everyone thinks they're ready to go. You know, they've got the skills they need. They should be fairly successful and it all falls to pieces. (laughs) And that's because if you're not Um, responding or interacting emotionally and using social communication the way people expect, then that creates huge problems. But nobody owns this. So, you know, sometimes neuropsychs can work on it. Sometimes occupational therapists work on it. Sometimes speech pathologists work on it, but it it tends to fall through the cracks because everybody thinks somebody else is doing it. Go ahead, Deb. No, no. Oh my God. We're so passionate. This is, you just, you hit a trigger for us. Yeah, I think Deb wants to (laughs) say something. I do. I say this quite frequently, but I think people don't know how to treat it. So sometimes just pretending that it's not there makes you feel better as whatever discipline practitioner you are to just, I don't know, let it, let it go on by you or something. Yeah, I agree, Deb. I think people don't know how to assess it. There aren't actually a lot of fabulous assessment tools to start with. So people don't even know how to pull out what exactly is going wrong to know what to treat. Yeah, And then they don't really know how to treat it either. And so, like you said, they just ignore it or they work on the small little thing they can pick out, Mm -hmm. which probably helps, but all of these things need to be worked on on a bigger whole. And so, yeah, I I think it's a combination of it falls through the cracks because you assume, well, I don't really know what that is. That's probably more the speech pathologist role. And the speech person is like, well, maybe the neuropsych should be doing this. And everybody just sort of waits for somebody else to, to take it on. So every time I give talks at conferences and things, I'm always, you know, hey guys, as speech pathologists, we specialize in social communication. This should be our thing. Um, somebody needs to own it. And, you know, whether it's OTs or neuropsychs, I don't think it actually matters, but somebody needs to own this to make it a priority in treatment. There might not be enough time or enough insurance visits to reimburse for something like that, especially if it comes out later down the road when they're home, when that structure is gone and everything's falling apart all at once. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's probably the case in, you know, in Canada, we had our system was very different than than the US, of course, and as is Australia's, but it's still the same problems, but for different reasons where you just run, you know, you've only got so many hours of treatment. And as I said earlier, you're focused on those other more day-to-day, what people consider the more important day-to-day functioning skills. I would argue maybe this is something that should should be moved up the priority list, but then they run out of time and they run out of money and they run out of access to service. You know, Barb, I've been been asked an interesting question. We we haven't looked at it yet, but some of the therapists at the rehab hospital of Indiana have asked me, well, I know this is kind of more advanced type skill therapy and training and stuff, but people were asking me, well, do you think that it would make more sense? Like if, if you just jumped and skipped right to something like this, right? Could some of these other things fall into place, right? So if you work on something like this, rather than working on these really low level attention, low level memory, low level, all of this stuff, and now you jump to this that includes all of those things, maybe those things are going to be affected and improved indirectly. So just skip all of that low level stuff and do a higher level activity that combines all of these things and somebody will just get better and it's more and it's more functional. I don't know if that's the case, if that's how it would work. I think that's it's an interesting question. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that you hit the nail on the head though too. I think for the most part, this is not traditionally included in a, in a testing battery as part of rehabilitation. It's not. Um, that's partially due, I think, to, you know, to the amount of time people are in, in, in inpatient rehab rehabilitation or outpatient rehabilitation, the time that you have to focus on stuff, and then partially due to not having good assessment tools for this. So if you don't have, and then, and then the third issue, like you had mentioned is, well, okay, if we assess it, but we don't know how to treat it, then that's going to not be great. So let's just not assess it because, well, we don't necessarily, you know, want to know if it's a problem and we can't help this person. And then, you know, this issue of whose ownership is it is, is another problem. Um, um, and I do know it's interesting because I've, I've heard this because so think about the description of the intervention that we, we just described, right? So to some degree, it's like 
oh, it's looking at face features and it's putting a label to something. Oh, that sounds very speech oriented or occupational therapy oriented. But then you actually start talking about somebody's emotions and their feelings. And, you know, I know we've had people do this and they're like, well, this is really interesting because now I, now they're, this person's crying in my office or telling me this really sad event or whatever. I don't want to forget because Peter had asked this question about intervention, right? So the thing is, is it u- being u- utilized? Is it is it is this a therapy that's incorporated frequently? No. But the thing with the research that we did, um, we did create this intervention. We do have a software program for it, and it is the highest evidence-based practice there is right now for this treatment, and it is considered a practice standard for treating emotion perception deficits in people with with neurological disorders. And we do have the software for it. So, you know, we have trained clinicians in various, you know, we've shared the software and trained clinicians in various workshops around around the world, really, we've done it all over the place. So, you know, it's it's available. And I think people are keen to to use it, they're keen to, to understand how to use it. And I, I think it's just getting the word out and people making the time or, or making this a focus in their treatments. It does cost, right? There's a, a cost to it. No. No. So there's two things. And Barb, you don't know this yet, actually. So one, (laughs) we do have this archaic software from the University of Buffalo that they made um, when we had first gotten the grant. It's it's something you have to download. A lot of hospital systems, you know, will block the download of it. You're not allowed to do it. And it's really problematic. And some computers just it it won't work on these computers. So really exciting news that I wanted to tell you, Barb, and I get to now tell you through this way, these researchers out in the in the UK reached out to me, they're doing research in patients who have tumor resections, and they had gotten a grant, I'm on this grant with them, Uh, they looking at patients who have these tumor resections who then develop social cognition deficits, and they want they're doing this intervention with these patients. Well, there's the old archaic software we're using became it was a huge barrier to them and they weren't able to use it. So they hired the software company to create an app. It's now available through Apple and Android um, for free. That is fabulous. The whole thing. (laughs) It's just available for free. That program is now available on an app. It's in the final stages of testing. So I don't, it's not, I can't, send it out broadly right now. I wouldn't send it out to you. I want, I need to send it out to Barb first um, because she's part of this project, but very soon it's going to be out there and publicly available. Do we know the name of it? I don't, Actually, I think they're, it's interesting how I have to get to it now. My guess is once they fully launch it, it'll be a different way of getting to it. Right, right now, they're referring to it as the Faces app. Um, but there's a lot of different um, emotion perception stuff on apps. So my guess is if you just, if you, you wouldn't be able to Google it now and find it. But my guess is very soon you will be able to. I don't know when you're going to launch this publicly, but they're looking to launch it within the next two weeks is my understanding. So do we need to be trained in how to do this? That's a really good question. So like Barb said, we have done training for people. I've, we've done it in Canada. We've done, I've done it in Norway. I think Barb has done it in other, you know, various places. And we've done like four hour training, six hour training. I've also, with the old software, people have reached out to me and I'll, I've just given them a link to download the intervention and, a, and an old manual. And people are like, oh, this is really intuitive. Cool. <laughs> Like, so, you know, I, I, I don't know how much training needs to be done, but you did mention say something earlier. I am still very much of the belief that this needs to be administered by a clinician. This is not something that should be self-delivered. It's not something that should be done by a caregiver. I do believe that this should be something that a clinician should be doing. I was now, going to say level? the same. I'm sorry, Dad. I, was just gonna say, I don't know what level though. Well, I can see where a caregiver probably shouldn't because oftentimes you have these family dynamics or caregiver dynamics. I can see where that would not go well. That was my thought because the UK were think they were trying to think of all of these m- methods to do these things. Um, 
And that had come up as an option. I was like, to some degree, it would be nice if that would work because there's so much burden on so many therapists and so many patients and and also people that live in rural areas. So if you could train family members to do this stuff, or at least kind of um, like filler sessions and things like that, like that'd be great. But the type of things that you're asking about, I could see it would could cause strain. And I think that, you know, Deb, when you said what level, when we did the initial randomized control trial for this, we had various, the way it was implemented in Canada versus the US versus New Zealand was slightly different in terms of who was delivering the therapy. So in Canada, we had support workers. So they weren't certified occupational therapists or, you know, neuropsychs or anything. They were just support workers that, that, we're already invested with these clients in doing various kinds of activities. But I think anyone who's got that capacity to interact with people with brain injury and are used to that space would inherently know how to respond. Because again, as Don said earlier, it's an emotion-focused treatment. And so all kinds of things get shared and said. And so it's just more about knowing how to respond and knowing how to guide them back when they go off topic, um, focusing them in on the right places, expanding where needed. And I think I think if you, you know, if you've got any sort of clinical training, and even if it's not to the degree of a certified um, clinician, I think you can do that fairly well and fairly instinctively. And that's probably where Don said clinicians, when they saw the manual, said it's quite intuitive because it's just what we do as clinicians. But for a family member or a friend or someone with no real training in those that interactional style, I think it could um, go awry pretty quickly. If you were a caregiver and you wanted to work on this with your loved one, do you have any things, interventions that are not interventions, but rather things that they can do in the natural course? I think you you basically outlined it, but uh, in a, a day-to-day involvement with a person with brain injury, how might you um, do the sort of training um, in a way that's accessible to caregivers and to people with brain injury? Barbie, you want to take that one? Yeah, I'll start with this one. I think, you know, I think one one of the things that that is really important for caregivers to to know is coming back to that um, when people don't respond or show the emotion you expect that it doesn't necessarily mean they're not feeling anything because that alone creates a lot of problems um, and angst and so if if it's just that initial awareness, I think, that even though they're not showing that they care that I'm sad, I know that they actually know it, but maybe saying, you know, rather than just coming in from the day of work and saying, um, when he says, how was your day? Or she says, how was your day? Say, my day was really terrible because, and it's being just slightly more explicit And then when they don't respond the way you expect, not responding negatively to that lack of response. Um, I think that's probably a really key piece to the whole interactions at home. I don't know, Dawn, if you want to add more to that. I think that was well said. I think a huge piece of it is, is the awareness of it and just having that level of understanding, knowing to be more explicit that, I mean, traditionally, right, we don't go around telling, explicitly telling people how we feel. Sometimes we do, but I think by and large, we don't because there's this expectation that people can figure it out from what we say, what we're saying or what we look like and stuff. And so just being more cognizant of like, you know what, my nonverbal cues aren't necessarily going to give it away. And it's likely that this person's going to get it wrong. So let me be more direct in how I feel. And then after I say, you know, I'm angry, like, you know what, I'm just looking to vent here. And I just want you to be supportive. I just what what is it that you you know, that you're looking for from your loved one, I think it could go, you know, a, a long way. And I do think and then Barb said it earlier about a lot of this type of ours did not do this, but a lot of research in kind of the kind of social behavior research and social cognition research do include care partners in the intervention and as part of the therapy. So they understand what skills are being taught and so that they can be supportive and cur- and encourage um, and incorporate that in their daily life. Um, and so like the, the folks at Craig Hospital, they... I think they included care partners, I think. Um, I did in their second trial. Iteration. And then, um, so the other folks that have done 
expanded on the work that we did. So when we did our intervention for emotion recognition, um, teaching people to recognize facial expressions um, at the beginning, when we did it, it was at the very beginning and we didn't even know that people, whether or not people with brain injury would be able to learn this skill again. So we didn't bother teaching, well, once you recognize the emotion, what do you do with it? How do you respond empathically? We didn't teach that. And um, the these folks in the Netherlands, um, they wound up doing taking that our intervention and then building on it and creating an empathy module and teaching perspective taking. So teaching people with brain injury that, okay, understanding that other people have emotions and their thoughts and um, kind of what their actions are. And then how can you put yourself in other people's shoes to kind of, you know, see things from their perspective and how to then respond appropriately. And their intervention, not only did they see changes in emotion perception, but they also found that improvements in empathic behaviors and improvements based from the caregiver reporting that they had better um, quality of relationship with the person with brain injury. So these things can be improved. And in in their study, they did include care partners in some of the sessions, not all of them, they kind of pulled them in to certain sessions. Um, And I think it's good for them, you know, for the caregivers to understand kind of what are those skills that are being trained. And the other thing that I think we also forget about is that these social behaviors, it's a two way street, it's not just the person with the brain injury, right? And so a lot of times the care partner could be a trigger to all of this stuff, and they can either facilitate or hinder, right? So they need they need to be aware of how they can actually help the situation and not make it worse. Yeah, I was thinking about how this could be challenging for the care partner too, because if you have to tell the person how your day was and explain why, not everyone is used to um, that level. It's like a metacognitive thing almost, like really knowing how you feel, why you feel that way and telling another person that. So that sounds like it's extra work for that person too, on top of whatever else is going on. So you know, a lot of caregivers experience burnout. They, they're doing more because of the changes that have occurred in their lives. And it changes the, the, in some ways can change the nature of that natural interaction between people, right? And so it's, it's getting used to that or, or recognizing when it's necessary and when it's not. And, you know, that takes a lot of learning and time and patience as well. So as you said, Deb, when they're already experiencing burnout and fatigue, um, yeah, it's not an easy thing. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.